Talking Aerospace Today, a podcast for the aerospace and defense industry, a place that brings the promise of tomorrow's technology to the ears of our listeners today. And I'm your host, Scott Salzweedle. I am so happy to bring you this special episode of Talking Aerospace Today. Our topic today is the future of space exploration and travel. Now, I'm sure you've seen what Sir Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos have been up to, but there's more innovation not making the evening news. For example, a company called Zero Space out of Louisville, Colorado, is doing some pretty remarkable stuff, and that's the topic of today's podcast. So in this podcast, what we're calling the digitalized future of space travel, we'll be taking a closer look at what Zero Space has on the drawing board, as well as what's on the runway. The goal behind Zero Space is to build a future of fast and easy space travel, which includes a commercial space destination and infrastructure. By opening up space via affordable access to all, the company hopes to empower humanity to enhance life here on planet Earth. With me to discuss the vision and technology behind Zero Space is CEO Tom Weiss. My partner and colleague Dale Tutt has joined the conversation. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the show. I'd like to begin with you. Could you please share with our listeners your background in aerospace industry? Yeah, first, Scott and Dale, it's uh, it's great to be with you today and uh, appreciate inviting me onto the podcast. It's great to be with you. My background, uh, you know, I started in uh, aerospace while I was still working in college. Attended the University of Southern California and started working for uh, Northrop Grumman, then Northrop, and spent the early part of my career really in the area of uh, stealth design and engineering and started working on what's now known as the B-2. And just had a remarkable career, lots of uh, incredible mentors. Ultimately went into the area of designing uh, aircraft, missile systems, spacecraft, Got involved with the James Webb Space Telescope, advanced autonomy. We started producing most of all of our own chips. We ran our own foundries in Southern California. So really have been uh, spending a lot of time in the area of early conceptual design, manufacturing, operations, and ultimately became the president of aerospace systems at, at Northrop Grumman. I'll tell you the reason why I got into this field was as a, as a young kid in the, uh, the late 60s watching the Apollo program, as many of us did who got into the, into the industry, just really inspired by what we were doing in space and, and human spaceflight specifically, and thinking about just exploration of the heavens and ultimately thinking about the opportunity for humanity to create civilizations beyond Earth. But the thing that has always stuck with me is the reason why we go to space and the reason why we explore, the reason why we push the boundaries of of human understanding is to benefit life on Earth. This is an incredible planet, one that, you know, we all really love. It's the home we grew up in. It's the hometown, if you will. And so we think about going to space and we think about the innovative, new, disruptive products that we'll create in space to really benefit life here on Earth. That's wonderful. So you kind of alluded to the fact that at a very young age, you wanted to get into this industry. Thinking about the things that were always very interesting to me was science and engineering, whether that was building fast cars, whether that was playing with rockets as a kid, whether it was designing my first RC airplanes, and then ultimately stuck with that. I got into advanced software design, 
trying to think about, you know, how to manipulate electromagnetics, which got me into stealth. It was always trying to understand, you know, how to create what other people thought were impossible and make it possible. And that's always stuck with me. Very cool. Very cool. Dale, let's turn to you. What were your aspirations as a kid? Yeah, actually, a lot of the things that Tom has said kind of resonates with me as well. I watched the tail end of the Apollo program, watching the astronauts walking on the moon. It was so incredible. And I think then after that, there was Skylab and and so many of the other activities and watching the space shuttle for the first time, even when they were just doing the drop test uh, with the the Enterprise. And then uh, I had the aviation bug as well. You know, my parents taking me to air shows and watching the Blue Angels probably when I was still just, you know, six or seven years old and, and just the amazing power of those machines and Whenever there's an airplane flyover, you know, I, I'd, I'd look up and watch the airplane fly over when I was a kid. And it just, that's, that's always been in my blood and doing model rockets, doing the airplanes, building model airplanes. It's just crazy. And for me, that's how it got into my, into my blood. And when I, you know, went to engineering school and then was able to, my first job was working for General Dynamics Space Systems Division on the Atlas One and Two and 2AS rockets um, back when that was, uh, when they were still out in California. And then, uh, I've had an opportunity to work at Cessna and Learjet and even Virgin Galactic, actually the spaceship company, which is a sister company to Virgin Galactic. But what Tom said really resonates with me about the, why do we go to space? And our motto, even at Virgin Galactic was, you know, we want to open up space for good and, and people see the world that we're on from space. It's a different perspective. And, and I think just the curiosity and the exploration of opportunity. So it's, it's you know, really cool stuff. I guess, you know, when I start talking about it, I always feel like I got the little kid in me again. So it's uh, it's always fun to yeah. talk about. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I share that with you, Dale. Yeah, like, I still remember, you know, my, my first trip up to Scale Composites yeah. and meeting Bert Rattan. Yeah. <laughs> and ultimately, we, you know, Northrop, as you know, acquired uh, Scale because the brilliance and largely driven by Bert, but the whole team up there. And in the early days of working with uh, Spaceship One and White Knight One and and ultimately the the products that, become, I think, part of Virgin Galactic today, it was amazing. Witnessing innovation at that level and thinking about just this commercialization of space, that uh, we've gone from just deep space exploration and human exploration around the moon to we're at a phase now where we really are transitioning from one of exploration to full commercialization. And the early days of of obviously uh, watching Burt Rattan and ultimately Richard Branson and Virgin Galactic, uh, it was it was inspiring. With all that innovation going on, we're going to continue to see the uh, cost of access is going to continue to go down and it's going to become more available to more and more people. It's not just going to be for the richest people or the most rich governments of the world. It's, it's going to be for everybody, I think. It has to be. I, I think to ultimately get there to the true opportunity here, the full potential, if you will, of human spaceflight and ultimately creating civilizations beyond Earth. And that's one thing that we're thinking about as a company. How do we drop that price and how do we make it accessible to everyone to enjoy? Let's talk present day a little bit here. By that, I mean there was the Space Symposium back in, I think, early April of this year. And I know Sierra Space was there. Tom, what was your takeaway from that event? Anything you want, want to share with the listeners? Yeah, I, I would say a little bit what I was just talking about. If you think about, we've now celebrated over 60 years of, of human space flight. But yet over that 60 years, 
You know, only a little over 600 people have been to space. Only 12 human beings have ever walked on the surface of, of, of the moon. And what, I'm, what fascinates me is we're in the midst of a significant pivot between one of exploration to now one of full commercialization. And that's what excites us as a company. And I, I think you saw that on display there at the symposium. You know, we're a company that thinks a, a lot about changing the way that humans have really experienced space, where millions of people are working, living in space. You know, civilizations are thriving. Businesses are opening. Families are raised in space. And our focus is really around the commercialization of low-Earth orbit. It's been hard if you think about the challenges of going just to low-Earth orbit, 250, 300 miles. But we think uh, over the next, next decade, that 250 miles uh, straight up, will become as ubiquitous as is 250 miles on a highway across the United States. And that's kind of how we think about it. And you see that in the way we think about transportation. It's, it's the way that you saw it and the way that we talked about our destinations. And it's the way that you see the way we talk about our underlying technologies. It's all about the commercialization of LEO. And now, why is that important? Again, we go to space to benefit life on Earth. So we think that by creating a new platform for business in, in low Earth orbit, we will see incredible new breakthroughs in biotech, uh, semiconductors, telecommunications, energy. And of course, we're really excited about hospitality and tourism. I mean, think about a, you know, a family that decides, you know, where do they want to go on vacation? Where do they want to experience something new that life has to offer? We want to be able to offer that to them in space. You travel into space, you spend a week on our destination, you look back on Earth and I think there's something miraculous that happens when you're in space and you're looking down at Earth and you realize that everything you've ever known, this is sort of the Carl Sagan in me, right? Everything you've ever known comes from this small planet. Every human being ever that's been born, every achievement that we know about is on this incredible place we call Earth. And it does something to you, I think. It makes us think differently about the human race. It makes us think about cultures and civilizations around Earth. You know, I think it just makes us be more humanistic. It makes us be more empathetic. I would imagine it's a very humbling experience. And, and then I, I would also think that all of a sudden we realize we're all in this together. We're all in it together, right. We're not thinking about, you know, we're, we're trying to leave Earth. For some reason for us to think about having to travel to distant planets because there's something that's going to cause harm here. I think we have to do everything we possibly can to protect this beautiful place we call Earth. And so everything that we think about, the commercialization, the new products, the breakthroughs on oncology, the next breakthroughs in advanced material systems, we think about it from the perspective of how to protect and how to benefit life on our planet. I think that's just a different way to think about things. Tom, that's some impressive visionary thinking. And, and Dale, where are you with this visionary thinking? Where do you see things? I mean, I would echo a lot of Tom's comments, the commercialization of space and the fact that you can have you know, such access to space and that it's within our reach. And that's the thing that 20, 30 years ago, people might not have felt like they could say, but you know, I think the amount of innovation now that we're seeing, it's within our reach. And I was off site for some meetings last week. And I walked by this conference room and their team had been in there having a, a workshop and, and they had their final question, which was, I guess, would be the opposite of the icebreaker question. But 
it was kind of the wrap up question. And the question on the board was, you know, what's the top thing on your bucket list? And I didn't even have to really think about it. It was like, I want to go spend a week in space. I want to see the world from a different place. To me, that would be like the ultimate vacation, you know, it is instead of going to the Caribbean, I'm going to go to space and, and spend some time up there. And, and, and I like the whole, the whole thought process that once we, you know, once we start operating in space, low earth orbit, we can develop new materials, new manufacturing processes that aren't available here in gravity. And so being in a different environment enables different uh, processes. And, you know, and I sometimes think, you know, what's that next step, the next space station maybe is actually on the moon where it's, you, you have access to the moon and you're, you're, you're just there and you have this permanent presence there. And, and I liked how Tom characterized it, that you're, we're not leaving earth. Uh, when we, we're extending earth, we're extending our reach. And that's, what's got to be important that when you think about the history of the world, you think about the history of the, of the United States and the explorers that first came. It was a daunting task to, to come to this new world. And then people started coming to carve a new life, to try something different, just to explore the unknown. And you think about how they progressed. And that's kind of our nature is, is to progress and to see the goodness that we have around us. And so that's why I'm very excited is that I think that you know, space exploration, I think the commercialization of space, but the fact that it's in our reach, you know, people can seriously start talking about that we will have a permanent presence on the moon and that it's not that far away. We're going to be sending people to Mars and, and, and that exploration, that explore, that curiosity that, that is within all of us, I think is really going to drive a lot of, a lot of the innovation that we're seeing right now. It's just amazing that the, the time, the period we're in right now, um, just so much to look forward to. And so we're, we've been sort of dusting off the crystal ball and, and kind of looking into the future. And, and Tom, I'm directing this at you. I know the International Space Station is going to be decommissioned soon. How do you see that playing out? NASA's role, like in the next 10 years, what are some real, some straightforward changes that you see are very possible, like in the next 10 years? First of all, the International Space Station and just the incredible research and development that's been done on the station, it's really allowed us to think differently. It's, it's allowed us to envision a commercialization of low Earth orbit. But the space station, the ISS, at some point will deorbit. Right now, the U.S. Uh, has certified the, the U.S. components through 2030. You know, the Russians' components right now would have to be certified past 2024. We'll see uh, ultimately where, where that ends up. But at some point, uh, whether it's uh, in mid, mid-decade or in 2030, the ISS will come to an end of its useful life. And that's where Sierra Space and our partners come into play. We're building the first true commercial LEO space station we call Orbital Reef along with our partners Blue Origin. And we intend to launch it and have it fully operational in 2027. And so we're really excited about the, the station but I would also think about uh, it's the first of many. You know, just like we talk about constellations of satellites, I can see a world where there's constellations of space stations, each one at a different inclination and altitude serving different customers, different needs. Some of them might be a complete uh, you know, biotech R&D facility. Some might be embassies. Some might be you know, hotels and, and uh, Airbnbs. And so we're, we're very excited about that. We see, again, by the end of 2030, one of the things that uh, we're building, you know, we're known for dream chasers, uh, you know, space planes and space stations. 
But the other thing that we're very excited about is is a place we call Earth Base One that we think is the first superhighway to low Earth orbit. And we think these highways are what's really important as goods and services are going back and forth between low Earth orbit and back to the surface of the planet. Raw materials going up, finished materials coming down, whether again, that might be a an organ that we create in space, or it might be a new semiconductor, or it might be a new uh, fiber optic cables that to be developed in space. That's how we see this decade playing out. I would say that we really are at the very beginning of what I believe is a, is the most significant industrial revolution we have had as as a human race. The space industrial revolution is taking advantage of every industrial revolution that has come before it. But this one has really got the opportunity to change everything we think about products and services and the way it will impact all of humanity. And I think that's going to play out over the next decade. The beautiful thing about a dream chaser is that, you know, instead of just sending things up and then bringing them back down and either laying a capsule, whether it's in the ocean or, you know, somewhere out in the desert, we actually fly back to any airport in the world in which can, you know, service a 737, for example. That will change things, right? That's the beginnings of changing the way that we bring things back to Earth. And we form relationships now. You, you've seen recently the, uh, the, the, the press release uh, at Huntsville. We've worked with the FAA, and Dream Chaser now fly, can fly into Huntsville. We're working that, obviously, in the UK. We've got uh, the work that we're doing in Japan. We also think that, uh, you know, again, Dream Chasers in Australia, Europe, Middle East, and then multiple Earth-based uh, here in the U.S., so, Tom, before we go any further, some of our listeners might not be familiar with Dream Chaser, and, and I know that's really one of your pride and joys. So I know it's a winged commercial space plane, and also I did my little research, and I saw that the first flight was scheduled for later this year. I'm not sure if you guys, what's the latest on that? And then also, can you tell the audience a little bit more about the Dream Chaser and, and how that came to be? Let me start off with maybe a little story. I was I was given a, a speech out at uh, Oshkosh, and this ninth grade uh, girl had asked me a question. Again, hundreds and hundreds of people in attendance, and I was asked the question: Do I believe that a space plane is possible, being able to fly into space and then fly back and land at an airport? I just think that, that that was a very insightful question to think about what's the possibility of flying into space and can we make it as ubiquitous and as simple and as, as safe as the airplane, the airline industry has become. And I believe that's what makes Dream Chaser special. We're building a space plane that has the ability, highly reusable, and comes back into Earth at a very low G, just like you would expect in a, in a regular commercial airplane, and again, lands on a runway. There's no toxic, hazardous fuels. And so you land and, and either walk up and pull out cargo or the people that we actually fly to space and come back and land, you know, they walk out of that, uh, the Dream Chaser and, you know, walk into the facility just like, uh, again, they're landing in, in, a, in a private jet or in a commercial airliner. What really makes this special is the new ways of which we think about space travel, that it makes it again, as easy and as ubiquitous as flying airplanes around the world today. If we can really pull that off, that's what makes going to space and coming back from space very different than anything else in our history. And that's what we're building. Our first flight is early next year. 
And where will that take place? At Kennedy Space Center. We fly from Kennedy Space Center up to the International Space Station to deliver cargo onto the uh, ISS. And then we come back to Earth and we land back at Kennedy Space Center. Very cool. Okay, so sticking with Dream Chaser, what did you find to be some of your more pressing challenges bringing that craft to reality? Where, where was the toughest challenge, you think? It's very challenging because it's both a spacecraft and an airplane. When the airplane comes back in, it has to fly. First of all, it's coming out of very high-speed regime, so it's flying at the hypersonic speeds, supersonic speeds, transonic, and then subsonic. And so it has to be designed. So think about all the aerodynamics, thermodynamics, all of vibroacoustics, all of that from an airplane side as well as a spacecraft. You know, many people ask the questions, you know, this, this airplane is hypersonic. It's hypersonic, supersonic, subsonic, all in, in a single platform. And so we had all of those challenges that we had to think about at the same time of being able to be highly maneuverable while we're in space. Uh, and then and obviously make sure that the reusability, this, this spacecraft, a space plane, is reusable up to 15 times. Right? So having that, that safety, reliability, and then obviously having the ability to, when it comes back is to enter Earth's atmosphere at a one and a half G. So the, the things that are on board, whether they're people or cargo, have that nice smooth reentry in back into the Earth's atmosphere. Land, turn the vehicle and fly again. So those were challenges. And I think, again, we've been working very hard over many, many years and solving those challenges. So those are, those are many of the things that we had to work our way through. So then I would imagine the digitalized work environment, uh, we, all, we talk about the digital twin and the digital threads and how important automation and traceability are. Those types of technologies had a major role in what you guys were doing. Oh, absolutely. As we, if we think about it, we're really excited about the relationship with uh, Siemens going forward. We are embarking upon every product we build, whether it's space stations, space planes, technologies, the way that we design our factories. All of it is built now on the Siemens uh, Accelerator toolset. It provides us a full integrated from concept to design to manufacturing. We can fly all of our space stations and space planes while they're still in the design phase. And that is hugely powerful for us. So having that fully integrated digital thread throughout the entire life cycle of a product across all of our products, and of course, all of those products are integrated, but also then having the ability to see full represented digital twins so we can perfect that design. We can think about how to, how to build dream chasers now where we're building the first article thousands of times in the digital domain before we ever actually produce it for the first time in the manufacturing floor. That is a huge implications in terms of reducing cost, rework, improving reliability and safety from day one. Uh, we can fly our products. We can see how they operate in real flight regimes. Again, while they're still in the digital domain, that is hugely powerful. At the end of the day, the full digitalization of our enterprise allows us to bring better products to market faster, the higher performing products at a significantly reduced cost. Getting back to what you had said earlier, Dale, we've got to reduce the cost of access to space, giving more people the opportunity to go to space. It's the old fly before you build it. Uh, we, we talk about that quite a bit and you've just illustrated that beautifully. 
Dale, you've been involved in digitalization in, in the aerospace and defense industry. And I'm just curious, your take uh, on how Sierra Space is using the digitalized work environment. Tom characterized it very well. I, I'm embracing the digital twin and, and what you can learn by flying it before you build it or even building it before you build it, that that virtual environment is, I think it's critical. And when you think about just the cost of developing these new solutions and, and the amount of effort that goes into all of the design, the testing, and the number of tests that you have to run, the physical testing, and the changes that happen. I mean, that's, you know, that's always been a problem is that companies either, they have to repeat testing, they have to make design changes because they've, you know, they didn't succeed in a test. They have to make design changes. They have to go test again. They build more test articles. All of this just adds cost. And, and, and that's what drives some of the cost of, you know, access to space today. And the other piece of it is if you don't get the performance that you intended, it's also more costly. It's more costly to build each, each vehicle. And so there's so many places where using the digital twin and the digital thread is really helping companies to go faster and to really reduce their cost and reduce that manufacturing cost is really what's going to really pay the dividends in the future. And so when you think about digital transformation, and I'm going to go back to some of the things that Tom talked about about at the beginning, where all the different requirements for the vehicle, you know, being able to fly it 15 times and have the right safety, being able to get a certain level of performance, coming back in where it's, you know, low Gs, there's certain profiles that they have to fly, and they have to look at how they can optimize the vehicle design around that. So taking a model-based systems engineering approach, and then flowing that into design where you're starting with those requirements and you have to be able to demonstrate all of the design decisions that trace back to those requirements and all the verification artifacts when you get done with your analysis and your testing, being able to trace that back to the requirements so you can then go show the people you know that are regulating this that you've done that work, that, that it's safe to fly. We're going to put people on this. We're going to fly them back and forth from the space station. There's a lot of work involved with that. And the more that you can streamline that process and really building that digital thread for model-based systems engineering and even into your design and in your, you know, your design and engineering solutions is be able to have that traceability is just, is just critical for companies and, and then have that seamless transition in the manufacturing process. So really they've done a lot here. And I, you know, really like that, that, that whole thought process of integrating these solutions from end to end instead of having these discrete solutions as you move through and then you're thrown over all the next guy, you really going to drive the cost out when you have that connectivity. And one of the things I've always seen is the first time you go through this process and you start to adopt digital transformation, maybe you save 20 to 30%. But then the next time you do it, you're going to save another 20 to 30%. And over time, you've really started to save a lot of money as you go through several programs. And so this journey that Sierra Space is on is is awesome, and I think it's going to be the critical to helping to get those costs down. Definitely. So, Tom, real quick, Dale had talked about some of the benefits, some of the advantages uh, of using the a digitalized uh, environment. I'm wondering, could you think of uh, a couple of specific examples of where that worked to your favor, whether it was like simulation or, or some sort of composite? I think the specifics is around traditionally you would find issues at the worst possible time. That is, you're now into production. You're, you're, you're bringing the first vehicle into manufacturing. And what you define is you have clashes. You, you have engineering that doesn't come together. You have significant rework and redesign. And that's what gets into this idea of concurrent engineering. That's a fancy term for me. I, I'm, I'm still engineering while I'm still building. I've got all this rework. 
And then you find that you, you're, you're finding challenges as you get into flight tests. I mean, how many flight test programs have we all worked on that we found things in the design while we're in flight test? That takes a program that you'd envisioned to bring to the marketplace, let's say, in five or six years, and now it's taking you eight and 10, and the cost is now doubling. The specific answer to your question is we can now find all of that in the early design while it's still digital. The accuracy of the digital design, the accuracy of the manufacturing simulations that we're building you know, in simulations, that product over and over and over again, teasing out all of those design flaws and fixing them while it's still relatively inexpensive. I think that's the first breakthrough, right? And that's the, the sort of thing I think Dale talked about. That's where people are seeing you know, sort of this 20, 30% right off the bat. What we're now envisioning is the fact that we can design higher performance products and bring them to market in fraction of the time. One of the things that we think about as we think about this platform is the transportation piece, which is the dream chaser segment, right? The key advantage to us is not just the fact that we have the only commercial space plane. The real advantage we have is that we can invent and scale those space planes for higher cargo loading, more passengers as the market demands bigger and more higher performing dream chasers. What the Siemens Accelerator Toolset does is allow us to bring those new products to the market at a fraction of the time and a fraction of the cost than what Dream Chaser 100, the first vehicle, did. That is ultimately the real value of what we're doing in our digital transformation. You know, I'll add one thing to that I think that I've seen a lot as well is that my own experience in working some of these programs, that upfront work is so key to accelerating all of those new those new innovations and to accelerating that, that development of those new programs. Because the decisions that you make early on, if you are not able to fully evaluate those in the virtual world, you end up proceeding. Once you get in the test program, what I've usually found is it's really hard to undo some of those decisions that you made up front and those lessons that you have. And so you end up paying the penalty of extra weight or extra cost in how you build it. And so by leveraging all of that the insights that you get from the digital twin and how you're able to verify all of this, that's what's key to being able to save that weight and get that extra 100 pounds of cargo to the space station. And it pays off in so many ways in the performance of your vehicle, the cost, the time it takes, just taking risk out of these programs. And so it is it is really huge. And and people, you know, they always often say, well, you know, you, you drive 85% of your costs in the, early, you know, the first 20% of your program. And that's a true statement because you end up living with a lot of those decisions. And we like to think of is when people compete against the uh, our platform in space, it is the full platform. It's all of our partners that they have to compete with. And so it's not just a dream chaser or a space station or a enabling technology and propulsion or power. One of the things that our competitors have to, to think about is that the speed by which we can innovate, and that's on the backbone of, of the accelerator tool set, everything we're bringing to bear that's why we think of this as a, as a full pat- platform play, not just an integrated set of capabilities. So we touched on Dream Chaser a little bit. I know you guys uh, have a few other tricks in, in your back pocket, and uh, I'm thinking of the um, what you guys call that Life Habitat Project. And so that's an acronym for Large Integrated Flexible Environment. It's amazing stuff what you guys are doing. So, Tom, could you just share with, with our listeners what the LIFE project is all about? What the LIFE project was about is how do we build a large infrastructure in space 
even though we're still constrained by the size of the rocket and the size of the fairing to go to space. The flexible structure approach allows us to uh, put up a, a module for a space station that uh, is constrained by a five-meter fairing. Uh, at the time, that was the biggest fairing we could get access to. It literally grows into a three-story building once it gets to orbit. So think about this for a second. In a single-life module, we uh, have the same volume on orbit in reference to the International Space Station. So think of how big the International Space Station is. $100 billion, multiple different launches. In a single launch, the life habitat is one-third the entire volume of the ISS in a single launch. That's the innovation. Now, that's pretty innovative, but let me take it to the next level. And this is, again, the way we think about this digital transformation. Now, today, there are seven-meter fairings. There's nine-meter fairings. And so Life Module, Life One, again, is this three-story building constrained to a five-meter fairing. We now can double the size of that in a seven-meter fairing and double it again in size for a nine-meter fairing. And so we now we have multiple different variants of Life Module, each of them twice as big as the one before. And the real beauty is Life Four is a, is a, a flexible structure that's never built on Earth. We're designing it to be the first station module that's actually built for purpose on orbit using, again, advanced digital design technology, but on orbit robotics and 3D manufacturing. So we could actually build to suit any size structure that our customers would have. And again, so you have to think about Sierra Space is we think of ourselves as the largest real estate developer in space. And so some customers want 300 cubic meters, you know, facility. Some might want a, a 1,200 cubic meter facility. You know, some might want a 50 cubic meter uh, or 50 million cubic meter. So whatever the size is, this now allows us to scale to that. I don't know about you, Scott, but man, I'm really geeking out right now. On some yeah, my head's spinning. It's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. So again, every, everything we think about is this a scalability, right? So we're going to build out Leo. We're going to build out a full commercial platform for the innovation of lots of different products, which brings with it lots of different customers. So our, our, our company can't just build a Dream Chaser or a Life Module. We have to think about how to scale these up as the market demands. And that ability to scale gets back to the heart of our conversation is what's the value of a full digital enterprise, a full integrated digital suite of tools that allows us to scale at speed. Again, you know, we, we like to take the you know, Sierra Space process, you know, the nomenclature Sierra Space and the Siemens Accelerator toolset, and we talk about this as the Sierra Space Accelerator. That's how much of this is integrated into our thinking. We've talked so much about the digital technology that's going on. Dale, I, you talk about this quite a bit, but in aerospace and defense, the certification is such a big deal. With stuff so revolutionary, how do you even begin to certify this? You really need to bring all of the digital solutions to bear here. And, I, and that characterization of the accelerator environment and the Sierra Space Accelerator, when you think about the digital threads and the, the, the workflows that we're able to help with our digital solutions, I talked a little bit earlier about model-based systems engineering and that ability to just start with the requirements. Because as Tom is talking through these different versions of the habitat, there's a set of requirements that are in place that are enabled to enable that stepping stone to each one of those 
have a test. So you, you're starting with that process around the requirements and you have that foundation. You're able to really then, as you design a product and you do your virtual verification product using agile development methods, fully analyzing, leveraging the digital twin to understand the performance of those sections. But it's a big program and there's a lot of different pieces of the program. So having your program planning execution pieces in place to provide those program management solutions and connecting that with verification management solutions. So all this data is being managed in, you know, as part of Accelerator, as part of Team Center, that digital backbone. So you're, you're, you're connecting the, the design and the analysis and electrical systems solutions. You're connecting all those together. You're being able to automate a lot of those workflows connecting to your program management processes, but also connecting to your certification processes. So you have this traceability of all your artifacts, both from a certification standpoint, but also program management standpoint. And now your team, you know, because you're, you know, we want to be able to automate a lot of those workflows is they allow those engineering teams to focus on solving complex problems uh, instead of just managing data and managing, managing schedules and managing all the artifacts that you, you need to show this. And so Really having that digital backbone, that platform gives you that end-to-end traceability for the certification process, but also enables the entire manufacturing process across the entire life cycle. So it really does, uh, you know, the digital solutions at the heart of, of helping to solve these problems quickly and really to help unlock the innovation that, that, you know, we need from our teams. So I think that's really how, you know, how the digital solutions really, you know, help support what they're trying to do. So Tom, what Dale just said, so much to cover. And and you might have mentioned this already, but I'm just curious if you just had to pick one breakthrough that the digital technology has, has allowed, the one the one thing that's just so eye-opening, what, what would that breakthrough be? The ability to have these highly accurate digital twins throughout the process. The first one is taking a digital twin of the design and bring in advanced manufacturing simulations to manufacture a product while it's in design over and over and over again. You know, you can do that all along the way. You can do the same thing and fly it operationally. So I think the one big breakthrough for us is it gives us these opportunities to test the design at multiple phases, and it's fully integrated. I think that is a very powerful innovation. you got to have a full digital thread to do that, right? Uh, And that's powerful. But for me, it's these digital twins along the way that are, that are the most powerful. Well, really powerful stuff. So we're sort of coming to a close here. Unfortunately, we have to wrap things up. But are there any last things you want to mention, Tom? Anything that we haven't covered that you want to get out there real quick? I would just encourage everybody to realize that, think about if you were in any of the previous industrial revolutions, whether that was the steam engine, the printing press, right? You know, the way that we think about the internet, we are in the midst of a true revolution. Sometimes it's hard to see when you're at the beginning of it, but this is going to change everything. I'm proud to say that uh, the partnership between Sirius Space and what we're doing with Siemens, we're at the forefront of this revolution. That's great. Wonderful. Wonderful. Dale, do you want to get in here? Any last words? First off, uh, Tom, thank you for joining us today. And I, I have uh, thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. It's uh, I'm looking for my first ride on the Dream Chaser uh, one of these days, but uh, <laughs> me too. But, uh, yeah, I guess I will have to get in line. <laughs> it's a, it's a, a slight employee discount. Yes. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll call you anyway. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, all, all kidding aside, it, it has been a wonderful conversation. I'll just you know throw in a few things. Oftentimes, I, I talk about. I really feel we're in a golden age 
of aerospace in general. And, you know, we, we talk about the urban air mobility and we talk about, you know, people developing high speed commercial transportation, but we talk about new space so much and, and it really are, you know, the, the number of companies that are, that are involved. It reminds me of, you got to go back to like the 1920s, maybe when with aviation that to characterize it, you know, they had, you had these guys starting a company in their garage, an airplane company building airplanes. And there was so much innovation that was happening and you had these contests and people doing these first things, you know, the first trip across the country or, you know, Charles Lindbergh's flight across the Atlantic. But that's where we're at. And that's why I'm so excited about this time period. And so I'm excited, you know, as from the digital side, the, the transformation that we're enabling for these companies to actually be so successful now, leveraging the digital twin and the digital thread and, and really, you know, unlocking the innovation that, that we're able to unlock because we're helping people focus on solving these problems. And so it's exciting times. And, and I'm really excited to be part of this, uh, you know, as, as part of this revolution as well with companies like Sierra Space that we're working with. So uh, a lot of fun here. Maybe one last one, Scott, is that just, you know, along the lines of what Dale talked about, I mean, imagine the day that, that we launch and Dream Chaser lands at the Paris Air Show and six people walk out and go into a chalet and have a glass of champagne. <laughs> it will change the way we think about space travel yes. forever, right? So we'll, we'll, never, we'll never stop the dream of point to point, right? That day's coming. I agree. Great, great. Okay. Well, Unfortunately, that pretty much wraps up this episode. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And Dale, likewise, it's always great to have you on the show. Thank you. All right, guys. So, listeners, if you enjoyed this episode and want to catch up on previous episodes, please subscribe to Talking Aerospace today on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your favorite podcast. My name is Scott Salzweedle, and this has been Siemens Talking Aerospace Today. Today.